This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Whoa. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, so it's it's early on Friday. Coffee hasn't completely kicked in yet. There's no nicotine in my body. Um, so. I had to do this early because it's a crazy day for me. I have um, Zoom calls out the yin-yang and then a lunch meeting. And then I got to figure out how to write a G file with only a few hours. Um, and uh, um, so let's, I just figured I would get right to it. I got no one, none of the crew is like listening or taking notes. So I feel like I can. Let my freak flag fly. The only problem is, I don't know if I'm awake enough to let my freak flag fly. Um, where to begin? So yesterday, for only the second time in the history of the dispatch, we had a um, unsigned editorial. Um, you know, editorials are weird things. Some people um, really don't sort of understand how they work, or I shouldn't say people don't understand how they work. They don't understand that things that aren't editorials aren't editorials. We used to have this problem all the time at National Review. Um, often, often, not always, but often in really bad faith from people who just wanted to tear down NR. Where, you know, you'd have a corner post or an op-ed or um, a, a column or even a syndicated column and... Uh, it was in the interest of our critics to make it sound like this was a signed editorial and spoke for the entire magazine. And um, that's the, that's really only, that really only qualifies for actual editorials. Um, this was always like one of my um, complaints about the old weekly standard. I think I have my record on being a, friend of weekly standard people is solid enough that I can, that, that my relationships can withstand this criticism. Um, I hated the signed editorials. Um, I didn't hate the editorials. I thought the editorials were good, but, um, or often good, you know, 
in the in the profession we have our our nits to pick um but i i really disliked how it was always you know so and so for the editors um and i think that it partly grew out of the original culture of the standard that was too person you know uh promotional of individual personalities rather than the group effort um um and i think that editorials are supposed to speak for an institution rather than for any one individual and you know that process at nr was you know uh pretty systematized because we ran and they still run lots of editorials all the time um at the dispatch we like the idea of being able to run editorials but we don't think we should um do it all the time and you know look and some of that is just sort of uh resource based we're a small staff we're all working really really hard and producing editorials that everyone can stand by takes a lot of time and all that but also we just think it's a it's a resource that we want to deploy sparingly so anyway we have our second editorial ever up the first was um about the january 6 riot and all that and um uh i obviously stand by our editorial um and uh, the basic argument is which you've heard me rant about some of this on here before obviously um and steve on the dispatch pod is uh and david <laughs> is that uh you know this was never a war of choice that's one of these phrases that people use um you know to you know it's like you know, I could have used, I could have done a whole chapter in my underrated book, Tyranny Clichés, on this. It is a way of uh, sort of bullying your opponent into an indefensible position before you even begin. Um, you know, uh, sort of like also endless war, right? You know, like if you if you successfully label the Afghanistan thing a quote unquote endless war. Um, and, and, or a war of choice, you, um, force the person who you disagree with, uh, to defend a category an abstraction, right. An open-ended, uh, you know, sort of platonic idea, you know, you know, it's not just defending the actual events and, and operations in Afghanistan. All of a sudden you have to defend the concept of an endless war or the concept of a war of choice. Um, and that makes it easier to sort of, uh, you know, steal a base when you're arguing for getting out of Afghanistan. The simple fact is, is that, you know, first of all, as, as for being a war of choice, um, to some extent, all wars are wars of choices, right? You know, there's, uh, either you decide to fight or you decide to lay down. I mean, that's always going to be a choice. Um, but there are some wars that you really, as a practical matter, if, you know, if we're going to be adults about this, you really have no choice but to fight. Um, Pearl Harbor was that kind of war, right? I mean, the Japanese attacked us. You could say, uh, you know, the U.S. expanding the fight to, to Germany as well and to Europe as well. That was a war of choice. But, you know, I, th whether you successfully persuade me that it was a war of choice or not doesn't change the fact that I think it was the right choice. Um, but Pearl Harbor, you know, we have, 
you know, all nation states before anything else have the right to defend themselves from outside aggressors. And, um, and, you know, so politically, practically, geostrategically, um, in all the ways that sort of matter about how politics and life actually work, um, declaring war on Japan after Pearl Harbor was unavoidable, simply unavoidable, right? Very similar about Afghanistan. After 9-11, um, you know, as a, just a practical, political, geostrategic um, proposition, we had almost no choice but to attack the Taliban in Afghanistan um, and go after Al-Qaeda, which a Taliban was give, the Taliban was giving safe harbor to. And for people who, who some people, uh, they, what, what they want to do is they want to conflate the Iraq war, which I think is more a, can more defensively be called a war of choice with the Afghanistan war. And some of this has to do with the youngins not knowing anything, not remembering anything, but there are other people who are of, you know, sufficient age that they should know better and remember better that Afghanistan was always called the good war in these debates. It was the war that liberals wanted to show and demonstrate their, um, their tough mindedness by saying that they were in favor of, I remember I was at a, I was at a panel at Brookings and they brought me in as the sort of crazy right wing trog. And, um, like Harold Meyerson was there and Peter Beinart and EJ Dion and, um, I don't know, some other sort of liberal blogger types. And of course, a bunch of Brookings people and someone, not me, but someone raised the question would, had, this was early in the 2000s, like early in the first Bush administration. And someone raised a question about would Al Gore have gone, would, would Al Gore have attacked Afghanistan too? And everybody not only shouted yes, but they were kind of indignant that their, you know, their, their sort of foreign policy manhood would be even questioned along these lines. Of course, Al Gore would do that. You know, the vote in the Senate was 98 to zero. Uh, the vote in the House was 420 to one, I believe. And at the time, you know, it wasn't that the one person, who, and I, I think the vote for Pearl Harbor was something like 400 and something to one. I, I'll, I should have checked that. But anyway, my only point is, is that as a political and practical matter, this was not a war of choice in the beginning. And this is one of the very frustrating things when I keep hearing all these people say, this proves that we have to only, when, it, when we use force, we should only do it in our vital national interest. Well, there was literally no person anybody took seriously in those early days of, or those late days, those early days after 9-11, when the authorization of use of force against Afghanistan was being voted and debated. There's no serious person who disputed that this was uh, in our vital national security interest. Um, and so then the question goes, you know, the, the real issue is, was staying in Afghanistan. Was that, you know, for as long as we did, should we have just gotten out when we killed bin Laden or gotten out after, I don't know, you pick your benchmark. Um, that's a different question. And, um, but it doesn't come, it, 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 it doesn't rise to the level of, of war of choice. Um, and, and that brings us sort of this nation building thing. I mean, I cannot tell you how many people keep 
you know, biting at my ankles on Twitter about, you know, how, um, I'm a nation builder and I believe in nation building and my nation building project is ending and my nation building views have been repudiated and all this kind of stuff. And, and I honestly, you know, look, there was a time where I was much more sympathetic to sort of nation building stuff. Um, though I was always, you know, I don't think I was ever like, you know, rah, rah, nation build, nation build, except for, you know, one thing I wrote, I think in 1999 about some stuff about Africa. Um, uh, but the, the case for Afghanistan was never about, um, you know, in the last 10 years, you know, it's never about nation building. Go find me someone, you know, go me find me one of these supposed champions of forever wars who was talking about nation building. I mean, I, I wasn't, and, and I don't know, Liz Cheney wasn't, and Steve Hayes wasn't, and, um, I don't think any of those guys at the weekly standard were or national review were, um, you know, the, the project was about protecting American national security. And, um, and I think that one of the things, and this is one of the things we point out in the editorial is that simply because the primary focus and mission of being in Afghanistan was fighting the Taliban, fighting Al Qaeda, uh, monitoring terrorist activities in the region, preventing the Taliban from taking over the country, all that stuff, right? Even though all of that was the primary focus or it should have been the primary focus of the reason to be there and of the mission, that doesn't mean the, the sort of ancillary benefits of, of quote unquote nation building weren't a good things in themselves, be in our interests and see something to be a little proud of. I mean, like the the core of the nation building stuff was like opening schools that girls could go to and like getting standing up democracy a little bit and having a civil society a somewhat secular civil society and all these kinds of things and it, was it super successful of course not but the the degree to the degree there were successes why is that something to be ashamed of why is that something like to be embarrassed of or to mock people for that's good stuff. And you know, the, the, it seems to me the proper emotional response to that is I wish we had more of it, not gosh, it was stupid of us to try for any of it. Anyway, read the editorial. I'm not going to summarize the whole thing here. And I'm assuming a lot of people are sort of Afghanistan out at this point, but the, anyway, the core point that I was building up to and then just completely forgot um, to stick the landing on is that uh, it was never a war of choice, but this is a defeat of choice. We've we've chosen, um, in you know the Biden administration has chosen with you know a major assist from the Trump administration to tell the world the Taliban beat us, and it doesn't matter if we don't say those words. The Taliban will say those words. Um, lots of other people will say those words, and. Um, and the whole lesson of the looming tower and 9-11, which was conventional wisdom among experts. And I don't say conventional wisdom among experts to say that it wasn't right. I just mean it was just sort of a baseline acceptance of the facts of how we got to 9-11 was that the withdrawal of the Soviet Union sent the signal to Osama bin Laden and a whole bunch of other whack jobs um, that a 
big superpower can be defeated. And if a big superpower can be defeated, and they thought the Soviet Union was tougher than us, if the big superpower can be defeated, that means the jihadis can get the caliphate that they want. And um, there's already plenty of evidence that that message is being heard loud and clear around the world. Economists just had a piece this morning out about how Islamic groups in various countries see what the Taliban has done and say, why can't we do that here? Um, and the idea that this whole thing was premised, you know, Biden keeps moving the goalposts about why he did this, but one of his main arguments and one of the administration's main arguments is that this is because we need to pivot to do big, important geostrategic stuff and that, you know, Russia and China would dearly love for us to stay in Afghanistan indefinitely because, you know, working on this sort of, you know, idea that Afghanistan was bleeding us dry of, of, you know, blood and treasure. And it was an open wound. Um, even though more people died in this exit than, um, you know, died at any, you know, was that what was the third deadliest day since most deadly day since 2011 or something like that. Um, and more people died, you know, tragically, um, trying to get us out of there than died in the, what the last, you know, year, two years, um, they've been there. And anyway, the point is, uh, it's all nonsense. I mean, it's, it's the, the, the country, you know, the, the, what we've done here is admit defeat. In fact, um, we're doing it right on the eve of nine 11, uh, the 20th anniversary of nine 11. And, um, you know, there's going to be footage all around the world and AK 47s firing into the air as they have, as they fly the Taliban flag over the, you know, not only over Bagram, but over the capital of Afghanistan on, um, on the 20 year anniversary of nine 11. And, uh, it makes me sad. And, um, uh, and I think it's all going to sadly, and I, I if you want to go back and check the tape. I was saying how I think all of this is going to play out pretty much kind of like this. Um, and I still think it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, um, my heart goes out to a lot of the families of American servicemen and also to a lot of Afghans. Um, and I just think the whole thing is just tragic. So, uh, other stuff. Um, oh, so just this morning, like an hour ago, hour and a half ago, I guess. Um, or at least that's when I saw it, um, while walking the dogs, uh, the Supreme court, um, throughout the Biden administration's illegal eviction moratorium. And, um, I want to say in as succinctly and as humbly as I can here, I was 100% right about everything having to do with this. Um, you know, and I don't mean like the legal argumentation about, you know, why this thing was unconstitutional and all that. I don't think I wrote or said much about that. My point was that Biden says this thing is almost surely against the law. Um, although he gets, you know, it's sort of like in, Rome, when Caesar bribes the, the, the augurs to read the bird entrails or the bird, bird flights in ways that are propitious and auspicious, which is the, has the same root, I believe. Um, 
as uh you know for caesar you know they went and found um what's his face at harvard uh, larry tribe to say he could do this which is you know like there's nothing in the constitution that says um if everybody including the supreme court says what we're doing is unconstitutional or illegal but larry tribe says otherwise therefore it's okay to give it a whirl but anyway that's what he did and um while admitting that the odds were that the court was going to overrule it, but he was doing it to kick the can and buy some time for uh, to get this stuff out there and get the money out there for uh, renters, which, I, look, I, I don't think is an evil impulse or anything like that. I just think it's lawless and, and a violation of his oath of office uh, to deliberately do something illegal for, um, you know, essentially for political purposes. But... My larger point, or I was, that was a pretty large point, but another large point, um, point of indeterminate size was that, uh, this is symptomatic or symbolic of our larger dysfunction where our political leaders who are elected to make these kinds of choices and do things the right way, um, instead pass the trash to the Supreme Court, demanding that the Supreme Court either take the political heat for doing something unpopular or um, cave to political pressure and, un and undermine their institutional authority um, and legitimacy even further. And so when the Supreme Court ruled against the eviction moratorium what in June, uh, early July? I can't remember now. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh said, "Hey, look, this thing is—we think this thing is illegal. We think this thing is unconstitutional. Um, it's certainly not kosher, but there are only two weeks left on it, or something. Uh, we'll let it stand and expire on its own. But if you really want to have an eviction moratorium, Congress needs to write a law, right? They weren't saying that eviction moratoriums, qua eviction moratoriums." are unconstitutional um i, I kind of you know i would kind of like to think that they would be um depending on the circumstances i guess but um but they, they didn't argue that they said the cdc director <laughs> isn't some sort of czar who can unilaterally um uh nullify contracts all across the nation indefinitely. And they said the statute, you know, the, uh, the statutory authority there is ridiculous and, and won't hold up to, doesn't hold up to scrutiny. So if you want to do something like this, write a specifically narrowly tailored law. Um, and you know, and that should be fine. And, uh, Nancy Pelosi, for whatever reason said, no, we're not going to do that. There's no time or it's too hard or whatever. And she said the president should do it. Um, the president, having the trash passed to him, says, eh, we can't do this. We got told by the court we can't do this. But you know what we'll do? We'll do it again, but we'll slap a different color coat of paint on it and pretend that it's something new. And then we'll throw the trash back to the Supreme Court. And then the trash finally makes it to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court says, are you effing kidding me? We told you you can't do this. Um, if you want to do this, write a law. And 
And now you've got Bill de Blasio with his dress over his head, calling this a bunch of calling the court, a bunch of right wing fanatics. Um, you have, uh, Robert Reich. I saw you tweeted this morning. Um, the what tweets here, the six Republican SCOTUS appointees, including three from Trump McConnell, just threw out Biden's eviction moratorium, clearing the way for landlords to push tenants onto the street. Shameful. Urge Breyer to retire. Criticize SCOTUS's loss of credibility. Expand the size of SCOTUS. Now, I'm on record for thinking that that Robert Reich is a feckless crap weasel. And um, I have detested so much of his politics and his approach and his dishonesty for so long. But this is a perfect example, right? He wants to, you know, like the court tells the elected branches of government, here's what you got to do to get the policy that you want within the four corners of the Constitution. And rather than do what their response, fulfill their responsibilities, they play these dumb games. And then the the Robert Reich chorus says, how dare you, you crazy, illegitimate, whatever's let's, you know, we, we need to, um, uh, you know, as he puts it here, criticize the Supreme court's loss of credibility. And then in the next sentence, expand the size of the Supreme court. Well, that will improve its credibility. If we can just get, you know, three or five, um, clearly, uh, you know, appointed to be political hacks on the court that will really, you know, um, firm up the court's credibility. And, you know, the, the, the Supreme court is behaving like the adult in the room and, um, and it, it makes it an easy target for all of these children. And so you have Cori Bush, right? She was the Congresswoman who, um, really is the gift who keeps on giving for when, if you're in a lazy right wing pundit mode and you just want some easy copy she's always there for you um uh she she's the one who uh slept out on the steps of congress um demanding action on this eviction moratorium thing and um she is credited with moving the biden administration to doing this thing in the first place and the, the thing about it is she like she tweets this thing where she says, if you, th you know, like I spent five days and five nights in the cold and the hot and the rain, um, for this, this is outrageous. The Supreme court is illegitimate. Um, I'm, I'm quoting this from memory. I don't have it in front of me. And she says, you know, Congress must act to restore this. And the thing is like literally in the new opinion this morning from the Supreme court, the Supreme court says, if Congress wants to do this, it must act. And she thinks like this is some brave, bold act of defiance of the Supreme Court and that the Supreme Court, that their goal here was like to make policy and ban um, eviction moratoriums that like, 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 like they'll be upset if the Congress does its job and finds a way to legally do something about um, evictions that like somehow that will undermine them when in fact that will be exactly what the Supreme court asked Congress to do. And that Congress was too chicken scat, uh, to do anything about. Um, and it's just, it's also cheap and easy theatrics and performative nonsense. And I hate 
hate the, you know, the idea that I got to be this like constant, you know, cheerleader for the Supreme Court when I think the Supreme Court is too powerful and gets involved in things too much. Um, but by virtue of the fact that a, it's a mostly conservative court, um, and B they're, um, they have lifetime appointments. They, and C, I think this is actually really important. Um, they don't have cameras in there. Um, uh, that you, that they at least have some desire to, to do their jobs, to stay in their lanes. Now, I think, you know, people like Breyer and Sotomayor, they have too expansive a view of their lane and of their job. And I think the Breyer's decision, you know, dissent in this from, again, I haven't read it yet or anything like that, but just from the snippets I've seen, seems like a hot mess to me. Um, but uh, the, the, the reason why, you know, our politics, particularly about the Supreme Court, are such a mess is that we constantly invest in them the responsibility to clean up everybody else's mess. And then we get mad at them about the way they clean up the mess. Um, and we demand, you know, that they do, that they become an extension of our party's agenda or their party's agenda. And that undermines the legitimacy of the court. Um, not just when it does bad political things, but when it does good things, because in this era of hyper politicization of everything, the immediate assumption that when some institution does something that you disagree with or that rubs against your rubs against the grain of your partisan interests, the assumption is that they're doing it for partisan reasons, right? I mean, it's it's like um, I think this is you know this is sort of part of what drives a lot of this COVID stuff is people think that it's that the inconveniences of the pandemic are um have a partisan bias to them and that that therefore you should oppose it i mean i think i talked about this on here a while back the guy i think he was in tennessee he was interviewed by cbs news and he s explained why even though he got covid and nearly died and he was in his hospital bed explained why he still if he had to do it all over again he still wouldn't get the vaccine because uh it was the it was the politicians or the Democrats agenda, um, to get him vaccinated. You know, this is what that, that, uh, what's his name? The, uh, Berenson guy, Alex Berenson, the guy, you know, at CPAC talking about how the Biden administration thought they could hoodwink, you know, 90% of Americans into getting vaccinated and they failed and the audience applaud. Come on, <laughs> you know, like that's, you know, sometimes when people are trying to do their jobs, they're just trying to do their jobs. Um, you know, when the mechanic, you know, fixes your carburetor, it, you know, if you, if you find out he's a Republican or a Democrat, um, that shouldn't make you mad that they successfully, you know, uh, achieved, implemented part of their agenda. Their agenda was to fix your car, replace your carburetor. You know, the, 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 if the if Trump had gotten reelected, the agenda of his administration would be to get everybody vaccinated. And I honestly and sincerely believe a lot of the most prominent anti-vaxxer types would would be on the Democratic side if Trump were president. And they're not going to take the Trump vaccine, and they're going to be you know freaking out about you know how this is part of Trump's agenda and 
all the rest. And anyway, I got a little far afield on this, but you get my point is that um, the Supreme Court, when it gets, when, when our political institutions keep shoveling their garbage onto the front steps of the Supreme Court, um, people assume everything that the Supreme Court produces, even when it produces the right ruling, is just partisan garbage from one side or the other. Um, and this is a bipartisan problem. You know, Trump loved to talk about how Obama judges were screwing him and that if they were an Obama judge, that therefore uh, their rulings were always suspect. We have lots of people trying to do that about Trump judges. But one of the great things about the Federalist Society and the conservative legal movement is that most of the Trump judges, I'm sure there are, you know, meaningful exceptions, but most of the Trump appointed judges are actually pretty good judges and they've ruled against Trump administration stuff quite a few times, including the, 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 you know, the lie about the election being stolen. Um, Oh, that's a good place to segue. So the, um, this Michigan, this federal judge in Michigan just, uh, slapped, uh, Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani and Lynn Wood. And I think there was some other Jack Watt in there. Um, uh, with sanctions for their lies and abuse of the legal system in the whole stop the steal thing. And um, it was interesting. I got some pushback from people the other day for, you know, when that, when that news first broke, I think I tweeted, it would take a heart of stone not to laugh. And, um, and a few people like, were like, you know, can't you let your, you know, your Trump derangement syndrome go or, um, can't you be more charitable or whatever? And, and the thing is like what those people did was really, really bad. You know, we are not talking about, um, some 24 year old social media, you know, director who doesn't know his ass from his elbow, who just goes along with what the bosses say and, um, buys into you know, the stop the steal stuff because it's fun and because maybe they believe it. Um, it's not even people like, I don't know, Roger Kimball who, you know, got ensorcelled by this nonsense. Um, you know, or, you know, the, the half, you know, the hacks and dimwits at American greatness who got, you know, seduced by all of this Powell and Giuliani and, and wood are serious. It's wood or Wells. It's wood. Um, uh, serious lawyers, you know, they know, they knew what they were doing was at minimum slapdash and unethical. They knew that they weren't doing their due diligence because what they were, you know, when they were sort of throwing out a gill net to find made up anecdotes about the election being stolen, um, they knew that they didn't, you know, that, that the, the allegations were you know, in effect, too good to check. And they abused the courts. They, they, they peddled lies to undermine, as the judge says, you should read the opinion. I mean, it's long. You should read the highlights. Um, uh, the whole purpose of it wasn't to actually find evidence that the election was stolen. It was to undermine faith and confidence in, in the election itself and in elections and democracy. And, um, they made misrepresentations to the court 
And so this this gets to like part of this argument that I had with with Charlie Cook back in the day. Um, I get it. I got the argument at the time. I think it, it certainly was good faith and and utterly defensible by Charlie at the time. Uh, that you know, and I forget Charlie Mitch McConnell made this point right that you know the president has every right to exhaust his legal options um, if he wants to contest aspects of the election. And he did have the legal right. It was a procedural right, you know, and, you know, it's funny how uh, some of the folks who hate, quote unquote, procedural liberalism like it when the president can use it to try to, to steal an election. But anyway, you know, he, he, he exhausted his options. I can't remember now. Was it 42, 45 court challenges? Many of them in front of Trump judges. They were all except for one brief one technical thing. Uh, they were all thrown out of court because they were nonsense and BS. Um, and in fact, you know, Giuliani most of the time would not go before judges and say the things he would say in front of state legislatures and on his podcast and all that kind of stuff because he was still enough of a lawyer that he understood that um, you can't, that if you lie, if you straight up lie or present false evidence that you know is false to a judge, you can get in a lot of trouble. Um, but, uh, apparently he crossed the line in Michigan enough that he got these sanctions. But my problem was with this whole, you know, let him exhaust his legal remedies kind of thing is, is a perfectly fine thing to say if he was exhausting his legal remedies in good faith. But the whole thing from the beginning was, was premised on the lie that the election was stolen in the first place and that they knew it was. And you can tell it was a lie from the very beginning because the evidence and the argument for what constituted the theft kept changing almost on a daily basis. You know, was it the North Koreans bringing in ballots through Maine? Was it, you know, Hugo Chavez reaching out from behind the grave with those, you know, um, you know, those legendary Venezuelan algorithms second only to the finest hacking software the Amish community can provide. Um, you know, it was all done cynically in bad faith in an attempt to muddy the waters. Um, sort of like when Trump went to the justice department and said, just call it corrupt and I'll do the rest. Right. It was a PR effort and officers of the court have a responsibility beyond, you know, a normal person's to maintain the honor and integrity of the legal system, particularly, you know, again, this wasn't the case about patent trolls. It was about an election and, you know, a presidential election. And the allegations being made was that this was massive theft on a broad scale, both by internal enemies and traitors and by, um, you know, foreign governments. These are not things you play around with. And Giuliani, you know, at least at one point in his life was the kind of person who understood that. All right, so where else to go from this? Um, um, oh, like on the Alex Berenson's thing, there's also that, that um, what made me think of this? Oh, that Brett Weinstein guy, and uh, uh, who's like, there's this clip of him the other day, I, I think I saw it on Twitter, where he's taking questions from, uh, the internet, I, I don't know where for, or from, from emailers or listeners or whatever. 
and he's asked, you know, would you take the vaccine? Like he says, the, 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 the choice is, uh, would you, which would you rather, uh, take the vaccine or get the Delta variant of COVID without any access to medication or treatment. And Weinstein, you know, furls his brow, says, oh, this is a really tough question. It's not a tough question. <laughs> it's a really easy question. And, but the, the fact that he's gone sort of anti-vaxxer, you know, clever anti-vaxxer, just asking questions anti-vaxxer, um, it kind of just, I, I don't want to pull on this thread too far, but like, I was pretty skeptical. I, I like Barry Weiss a lot. I think she's doing really impressive things and, and she's a really charming, intelligent person and, and, you know, hope to do stuff with work with her in the future. And anyway, I like her a lot, respect her a lot. That's all true. But I was a big critic of her, you know, one of her debut pieces was this long piece about the intellectual dark web. And it was this long thing about how, you know, there are these people outside of mainstream channels that are asking the tough questions and questioning the woke orthodoxy and all these kinds of things. And the, the, my problem with it is one, I, I mean, like, I like these kinds of, I, I like intellectual history stuff. I like identifying different intellectual tribes and all these kinds of things. And, um, but my problem with the piece and with the general conversation about the intellectual dark web was that there was no through line about who qualified as being a member of this, you know, sort of shadowy, you know, league of extraordinary intellectuals and who didn't. And um, it seemed to me that in part because some of these people had no real institutional affiliations um, and were basically just, you know, developing their own individual brands, that there was no way that you could call this a cohesive group that shared a meaningful ideological or intellectual through line. Um, and there were people, you know, in it, you know, I think Christina Haas Summers, you know, I love Christina. She's a colleague of mine at AI. I've known her for a long time. Um, you know, I think she was part of the intellectual dark web as were like, you know, some people I had never heard of and, and obviously now can't remember, but Weinstein was one of these guys. And, um, and I think that just the fact that these people have, you know, have scattered to different corners, um, is just, you know, proof that the whole idea of the intellectual dark web at the time was really an exercise in sort of, you know, look, let's put it this way. Say you have a, a poster with, just a whole bunch of dots on it. And they're, I mean, I know it's very difficult to actually come up with a random pattern or number because of whatever, but let's just say they're just a bunch of random dots all over the board. Um, like some three-year-old with a, with a Sharpie was just stabbing the poster all over the place. Very easy to connect any number of those dots any way you like. That doesn't mean they're actual connections there. And that was sort of my feeling about the intellectual dark web at the time. Um, any attempt to come up with a definition of it 
either was so incredibly narrow um, that it only described a couple of the people or it was so incredibly broad that you could dump anybody into it. And um, I know I was just thinking about that the other day when I saw that thing on on Twitter. Um, uh, where to go? Uh, how long have I been, do- been doing this thing? I'm sorry if I sound exhausted. It's really only because I'm exhausted. Um, oh, yeah. So um, I got a lot of great, and I'm very grateful for it, um, feedback on the solo podcast last week. And I probably just should have told people at the top of this if they hadn't listened to that, to listen to that instead, because I think this effort this morning probably sucks. But um, particularly, you know, and I, I warned listeners in advance that I was going to rant and then I ranted. And usually when I rant about that kind of stuff, um, I get a lot of um, unpleasant pushback. And so it was nice that I actually got some really wonderful um, support from people. And I, and I, and I do appreciate it. Um, I wish I had had this one datum um, last week when I um, um, was making my my points about the remnant and all of that. Uh, this is from uh, the, the University of Virginia. You know, they have that that, cent- that Larry Sabato has that Center for Politics thing. Um, when I had this big report thing. Um, and I've, someone sent this to me, and I think it's really interesting. Um, we'll put it the, a link to it in the show notes. Um, it says, Trump was perceived as far more conservative in 2020 than in 2016. In 2016, Trump was viewed as the least conservative Republican presidential candidate since Gerald Ford in 1976. In 2020, however, he was viewed as the most conservative candidate in the history of this question in the NAANES survey going back to 1972. This shift was significant in that it placed Trump farther from the average voter than Joe Biden, while in 2016, Trump was considerably closer to the average voter than Hillary Clinton was. Now, I think there's a lot of interesting things to say about this um the first one is just in my own you know defense is that i thought trump was among the most liberal candidates um republican candidates to ever run in my lifetime in 2016 um i think i was right about that and i think a lot of other people thought that too and a lot of those people changed their minds now, some of that has to do with the fact that Trump actually did govern more conservatively than I predicted. Um, I shouldn't say governed. Um, his administration's policies were more um, uh, conservative than, than I had predicted, and I'm perfectly willing to concede that. I think that had to do with the fact that Mitch McConnell and, and Paul Ryan and a bunch of people in his cabinet um, uh, essentially rolled him and pushed him in a direction that he wasn't particularly eager to go in um, without it. I also think it's because Steve Bannon was one of the most disastrous political advisors in American history. And he's the one along with Jason Miller, the abortion pill guy uh, who told Trump that he should go 
hard nationalist blood and soil type, starting with, you know, that inaugural address. Um, also Stephen Miller is part of that too. Um, and, uh, and turning off a lot of, uh, you know, just from day one, uh, making it almost impossible for him to do anything bipartisan. Uh, and so meanwhile, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell had stuff on the shelf that they wanted to run with and Trump ran with it. And so a lot of the things that the, the sort of MAGA types and nationalists, uh, who talk about how wonderful the Trump administration were and how terrible Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and the GOP establishment were, um, they always seem to miss the point that virtually everything in those first two years that Trump accomplished, that Trump brags about to the, still to this day, were mainstream Republican accomplishments, you know, tax cuts and judicial appointments and, and all of that. Um, and that's because Trump outsourced most of the important stuff, um, legislative stuff, to uh, the GOP establishment. Um, but that said, I also think that a lot of people who thought Trump was really liberal in 2016 um and then thought trump was really conservative in 2020 i think a lot of it is also that that they allowed the definition of what it means to be a conservative to change over four years trump invested or i should say infected um conservatism with all sorts of ideas that in 2015 most conservatives um would say, you know, really either have no place in conservatism or, or a deeply flawed, um, um, both at the rhetorical and at the, you know, at, at the practical level. Um, you know, I mean, conservatism was, was overwhelmingly free trade, uh, you know, in 2015. Um, it was against picking winners and losers in the economy. It was against industrial policy. It was against all those kinds of things. Um, and though the, the conservative positions on that stuff, the conservative, uh, not just the conservative positions on that stuff, but the, the definition of conservatism on those kinds of issues changed over those four years. And so I just bring this up in the context of that rant from last week is that all these people who keep accusing me of having changed, um, I haven't changed that much. Uh, I, you know. On, on the on the policy and philosophical stuff that's i'm i'm like the remnant i i i stayed where i was and everybody else went to these new definitions not everybody else obviously there are a lot of people including a lot of listeners who didn't go but you know we stayed on our side of the boat and everybody rushed to the other side of the boat and tilted it that towards that direction um anyway i think that there are other interesting things that you can say about this data and stuff, but I'll hold, hold off on that for another time. Um, I do think it's like one perfect example of how the party has changed around us is uh, this line from J.D. Vance in the American Conservatives, the American Conservative, um, where he says, um, you know, I think our people hate the right people. Um, uh, I get that point. And I, I guess that's one of the places where I have changed is that I, I no longer have the same capacity to hate on. I, I don't think I, I ever thought of myself as a hater to begin with, but like, I don't have that the same capacity to arouse, um, 
sort of that tribal we're right, you're wrong passion about a lot of issues because, um, I just think that, that the, um, a big chunk of the right and the Republican party has lost its moral standing, um, to make the kind of sweeping statements that, you know, basically define political debate these days. And, um, and so I think that's one of the things that really disappoints people the most in me is this, I, um, um, I'm not as good a partisan as I was. And they kind of thought that that was always, you know, core to what I was doing. And I guess for a while it was, and I just, it's just not there anymore. I still, I, I don't think anybody can point at the stuff I've written over the last five years about progressivism, about, I don't know, new deal about Afghanistan, you know, you name it that they can say I've become, you know, a liberal, um, or a progressive, but, um, they can fairly say I've become less of a partisan and, you know, and it makes me sad that some people feel betrayed by me because of that fact. Um, but not so sad that I'm going to do anything about it. Oh, so on a recent episode of, uh, the, the last time Charlie Cook was on, I asked him for if he was watching anything interesting and he said, unforgotten this British show. Um, I just figure I'll end with some culture stuff until some other idea pops into my head. Uh, we just fin my wife and I just finished my wife of 20 years as of Wednesday. Um, 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 we're going to hold off the real celebration till later, but you know, I'm deeply grateful to the fair Jessica for sticking with me. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, this show Unforgotten. Um, I don't know if how many of you have seen it. I mean, I'd never heard of it until Charlie brought it up, but apparently it's been like this BBC slash PBS masterpiece theater thing, thing for a long time. Um, the premise is it's kind of like Cold Case. Um, even though I've never actually watched Cold Case. Um, but it's, you know, the premise is every season begins where they find a dead body that has been, you know, dead and missing for 30, 40 years, you know, since the late eighties or since the early nineties. And that's so far the first two seasons. And there's this woman, this, this police detective who is determined to, um, solve the case. And it's really interesting and also really preposterous. Uh, you know, it was funny. It wasn't until the end of season two that anybody mentioned that maybe devoting, you know, um, hundreds of man hours, right? She's got a squad of like eight people working for her, um, that are legging out, um, uh, leads on a 40 year old cold case. They call it historic case, which bothers me. Um, damn Brits. And, uh, but so like they're, you know, expending massive amounts of, uh, presumably scarce, um, police resources. All of these are like plainclothes detectives and, you know, and they're hoofing it out to warehouse managers asking if they remember so-and-so from 40 years ago or whatever. And it's only until like the last episode of season two that someone says, maybe this isn't the most you know, trying to solve the case of an abused child from 
40 years ago, maybe these resources could be better spent um, trying to find, uh, you know, trying to solve some of these cases right now. And, um, and look, and I get it. I mean, I always loved the, in homicide, the Andre Brower character saying that we speak for the dead and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I get the desire to solve some of these cases, but just the political practicalities of it, that like it, like the, the, the resources being exert, ex, you know, expended on a, uh, 40 year old, uh, missing person, um, who turns up dead is kind of bizarre, but the more bizarre stuff about it is that. And I, and I, I picked this up in the, the reviews as well. So many of the um, reviewers point out about what, what sets this show apart is its compassion. Um, and the idea is that, uh, you know, this, this chief detective, um, DCI, whatever, I can't remember her name. Um, she has real sympathy and empathy for, you know, the disruptions she's causing to people's lives by overturning these stones that these people had long since thought forgotten. And, um, and there's a lot of sort of weird, I I want, I don't want to say wokeness or political correctness, but, um, there's a weird cultural leftist whiggishness to it that I think is interesting in its own right. And particularly interesting that, that Charlie Cook, likes it as much as he does i mean we like it too but it's just like i've made peace with it because it's a soap opera it's like a lifetime it's a british lifetime movie of the week every episode kind of thing and not the the grim gritty police procedural i was kind of hoping it would be but um the sort of the, the one of the running themes of the thing is people having to say you don't understand this was the seventies or you don't understand this was the early nineties. And then what follows are things like, Oh sure. You could like, you know, uh, you know, have sex with 12 year old girls or, um, you know, uh, you know, murder gay people and all of these kinds of things. And I'm not saying that, you know, our, 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 social mores and attitudes about some of these things haven't improved or anything like that, but they make it sound like, um, you know, 1991 was the first year of the purge where crime was legalized and you could do anything you wanted. And now in the 2000, whatever's, we are so much more enlightened because we understand that the evil ways of the 1990s, are no longer acceptable. It's, it's, it's really kind of weird and, and, you know, it makes you like, yeah, I think back about like, did I miss, um, you know, the, 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 the red hour of, you know, 1990, uh, when I was in college, I mean, it's just, it's very, very weird. And yes, red hour is a, um, Star Trek reference. Hail Andrew. Um, and the other thing I'm watching by myself, because my wife already saw it and she's been bugging me for a couple of years to watch, is um, this HBO show, Barry, which I really think is great. Um, I think it's really um, much more clever and interesting than I thought it was going to be. Um, and uh, I, I, that one, I, I, I'm more willing to recommend Barry than I am Unforgotten. I think Unforgotten is kind of a good uh, mar- you know, married couple uh, wind down the day, um, kind of show. 
but Barry is one that actually requires your much closer attention because it's, I just think it's really interesting. It has a lot of things going on in it. Um, okay. So other than that, I think, I, I think I'm, I think I'm done here. Um, there were some other stuff, but I guess I can, that can all wait. Um, we've heard from my daughter out at school and, um, tragically, I mean, things are going pretty well. It sounds like, you know, my, my daughter's instincts are generally to complain to her parents about where she is. And then it's only when we get there that we found out she has, find out she has lots of friends and is having a good time. So the fact that she's complained so little is probably a good sign. And the fact that she didn't call to complain and for, for three or four days is probably a good sign too. But then last night around three in the morning, I got a text from her saying that what they call them freshman year guides. Um, basically these students who are kind of like hand holders during orientation kind of thing, um, contracted COVID and now they all have to isolate and we don't really understand what that means quite yet, but it's really a drag because COVID is so screwed with so much of my kids um, last few years. And I know she's hardly alone in that, but um, again, because of the concentric circles of loyalty and, and association, I care more about my kid than I care about your kid. And doesn't mean I don't care about your kid, but, but I think you, uh, anyway, you should probably just go read the, Wednesday G file, which gets into a lot of this stuff. And, um, um, and anyway, I don't want to get into a bunch of family stuff again. I can, I can talk about that for a while, but today's not the day for it. So, uh, with that, um, I'm going to get more coffee because I desperately need it. If you couldn't have figured that out and, um, thank you all so much for the support. Please become a dispatch subscriber if you can. Um, we have a really exciting fall coming and, um, and do check out our editorial. Um, I think it's worth reading. So with that, um, I'll see you next time. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.